I'm excited to announce that the Short Goat podcast has now joined the MedEd Media Network at MEDEDmedia.com. The Short Coat podcasts are broadcasts from the amazing and intense world of medical school from the students at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Go check them out directly at theshortcoat.com. This is Specialty Story, session number 12. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and if this is the first time you are joining me, this is not how my voice sounds normally. I just got back from a long podcasting conference, and I talked the whole time. And now my voice sounds like this, and I think I have a cold on top of that too. So I apologize, but that's okay. The show goes on. I just want to mention one more time that the Short Coat podcast, which is an amazing podcast put on by the students at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, is now part of the MedEd Media Network. Go check them out at theshortcoat.com. Today's guest on Specialty Stories is a solo private practice facial plastic surgeon. It's a great specialty, super subspecialized specialty of ear, nose, and throat surgeons or otolaryngology. And Victor, or Dr. Chung, is going to join us and tell us all about it. My name is Victor Chung, and I practice facial plastics and reconstructive surgery as a subspecialty of otolaryngology, ear, nose, and throat surgery. What type of setting are you in? Are you academic or community setting? So I'm actually uh, one of the rare breed private practice, uh, truly private practice, solo, by myself, um, You know, the only physician in the office, and um, it's an interesting kind of hybrid situation where, uh, as a specialist, I am affiliated with a number of the hospitals in the San Diego area. However, I'm not, you know, officially on staff, like in the hospital, always there all the time. Um, but I do do consultation and coverage for call and operate at those sites. What made you decide to go to the private practice route since it seems like the majority of physicians are pulling away from that? Yeah, that's an absolute truth. Um, you know, out of all the the fellows who graduated my year, only two of us went into true private practice and opening practices. The majority were either joining multi-specialty practice groups, or um, and even looking for academic jobs is was a tradition, and that's falling by the wayside. My personal reasons is. Um, I had phenomenal training, and I wanted to practice medicine the way I was trained to do it. And when you become a part of a bigger group, and that may be a partnership even, as small as that, uh, there's a level of compromise. Otherwise, there's, there's no way for you to be successful. You can't uh, do everything your way and expect the other person to, to do it, and you can't have someone else expect you to do everything their way. Um, and so... To have that choice, uh, that freedom to practice, um, 
without restriction in a sense, um, delivering the care the best of my ability, um, ordering the more expensive supplies, equipment, or employing a technique that's um, that I know how to do well, uh, then uh, th- that choice was you know natural for me in the sense that I had the luxury of um, being in a great you know personal situation that I could do that. So um, you know it's not a complete compromise when you join a bigger group, you join academics. Um, but a lot of times you find that your patient population or your group that you're in, the environment will dictate um, your niche and your future. And um, you may start doing things that don't make you necessarily happy anymore in medicine. Um, and you start doing fewer of the cases that you like to do or the, take care of the patients that you like. So um, you can find that ideal situation in academics in larger groups, but it's just more challenging. Okay. How long have you been out in practice? So I've been out in my own practice uh, officially, doors open, um, just over 12 months. Uh, It took me a number of months just to get my place uh, set up. A lot of logistics and a lot of things they don't teach you in medical school or residency or fellowship about um, applying for business licenses and insurance and uh, all the other um, types of regulations that are Necessary to own uh, and run a successful and safe business. When did you know you wanted to be a facial a facial plastic surgeon? I don't know if there's an exact point in time. You know, in medical school, I always knew I was going to do surgery. Uh, enjoyed that aspect of thinking, the hands-on aspect of it, uh, the culture, the lifestyle. Um, you know that was all agreeable to me. Now honing it into a particular specialty uh, was tough. I was looking at a number of subspecialties that uh, operate in this area: ophthalmology, uh, neurosurgery, plastic surgery, craniofacial, um, you know, and ENT. And when it came down to it, um, I found that that uh, ENT subspecialty. Um, really appealed to me because there were so many aspects that um, were different, uh, even within a singular focus of the human body. It was challenging. Um, and facial plastics is, although a, a sub-subspecialty within it, um, it's still an integrated part. You'll go out and, and in the community and meet physicians who are ENT trained, but not fellowship trained, but they are still practicing as facial plastic surgeons. And that's encouraged by the overall academy. And those types of um, procedures can be, you know, reconstructing cancer that have been excised uh, on just a skin level, but others are doing uh, larger reconstructions or rhinoplasty and facelift um, based on their skill set and the comfort level. And I find that the ENT specialty overall gives you all the skills that you need. And as an individual, you get to pick the things that you are comfortable with or you really enjoy doing and focus on those. And oftentimes you'll meet other physicians in your community who like doing the other procedures that you may feel less comfortable with or ones you don't like doing as much. And so there's a good camaraderie that goes on there and, you know, you're a lot happier treating the, you know, disease states and doing the surgeries that you like to do. What traits do you think lead to being a good facial plastic surgeon? Uh, It's, um, 
a very particular skill set because you're talking about someone who needs to be both left brain and right brain. You need to be analytical um, and very objective in a sense and understanding proportions um, and uh, direct measures and changes in that sense, but also someone who has an artistic component in uh, how they think about things, how they view things. And so when I perform a rhinoplasty surgery, I am not only looking at this overall picture. So, um, you know, it's just not just a nose and a good shaped nose, but I have the entire face prepped in the field and exposed. I'm looking at the relationship of the nose to the chin, the forehead, uh, proportions to how wide the eyes are and that overall aesthetic. But in addition to as a confirmatory uh, measure, I do um, all these different measurements, how far the nose projects out, the angles, um, and those are fit uh, within you know accepted values. And so you need to be able to combine both sides and not be locked in into either one um, and be able to produce something that, you know, people have to, you know, it's right in the middle of your face is very obvious. So uh, I think the stakes are a little bit higher. As you came down to the decision to go into ENT, were there any other specialties that were close in the running or did have you had you had made that decision at that point you know i actually had not picked my residency you know especially until very late in the process um i'd gone through most of the clinical clerkships of my third year thinking that i was leaning toward um maybe orthopedic surgery it's just a you know, a, a, a specialty within surgery. I didn't think I was going to do general surgery, but I did know it was a, some sort of surgical hands-on going. But at the time, also interventional procedures are getting big. You know, interventional um, radiologists and cardiologists, uh, they have very hands-on, um, very three-dimensional stereotactic type um, specialties as well. But, you know, when I was thinking about which one to hone in on, um, I didn't get that exposure until you know in the last, maybe the last quarter of that um, third year clinical clerkships, but it did turn around. And I just got to interact with some very um, stimulating cases at the same times as you know very nice residents who were open to sharing what they were doing and get allowing me to participate, and you know inspirational you know attendings, and so it always happens to be sometimes that magic combination, but. I always tell students who are trying to figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives that you can't just base that purely on a good experience. You need to figure out what is the day-to-day kind of drudgery. Um, you know, what are the patients that come in and can be, you know, on the side of some people say painful or take up extra time and, um, you know, make people sort of shudder at thinking like, oh, no, I'm going to see a bunch of those today. Um, and see if you're okay with that. And for, in the specialty of ENT, um, you know, uh, boogers and earwax, that's what I tell people. Like, <laughs> if you have no problem uh, with those bodily fluids, then um, you'll be okay. You know, some people's aversion is blood. You know, other people, it's, you know, they don't like eyeballs. Uh, the other, you know, they don't like, uh, they don't like stool, you know, then, you know, that's not, you know, so you got to kind of pick what you are comfortable with seeing day to day. Because if you don't like your day to day, you're not going to enjoy the highlights anymore. 
And so um, I, I tell patients, I tell students all the time that you know, uh, check out the check out the really dizzy patient that you know is struggling and you can't get a good exam on, but you still try to figure out how to treat them. Um, you know, spine surgeons they have low you know, back pain. You know, it's really it's really really tough sometimes to figure out if they're surgical or non-surgical, and yet they they can take a more than a, a full appointment visit. So each specialty, I tell I tell students to examine. You know, find those highlights, but also find, you know, or the low points and if you're okay with those. Yeah. What types of patients do you treat? I see all kinds of patients, and that's what it really keeps me captivated, stimulated in my specialty. You know, it goes from very minor, very cosmetic. You know, there's no medical emergency about it whatsoever. There's no urgency. It's purely elective. The changes are super subtle, super small. Um, you know, there's no life-threatening thing that you're changing, and yet people gain quite a bit of benefit from them. You know, attitudes change, self-esteems improve uh, with a subtle thing that bothered them that maybe no one else noticed. But on the other end, you know, I'm still participating in general ENT call. I'm, I'm doing tracheostomies for people who have lost their airway. I'm doing reconstructions for people who have lost uh, major tissue from skin cancers or other disease or trauma. And so, um, and those are very drastic changes, you know, to improve someone's function. And, you know, there's very little cosmetic aspect of that. Um, and so I like that spectrum. I don't think I'll ever really give up uh, doing all those things. I don't do much for ear tubes anymore. That's probably the most um, minor surgery you can do. Um, but, uh, you know, I like that full gamut of complexity and simplicity. And, you know, because you can gain benefit for your patient um, on both ends. Describe a typical day for you. Well, being new in my practice, every day is pretty variable at this point in time. The idea is it is a clinic, a private practice-based practice. And so the majority of my patients would be seen in the office setting in a combination of consultations, follow-up visits, um, minor procedures, um, injections, injectables, those types of um, visits all in the office. And that'll be, um, as the trends go, more and more uh, surgeons are, are doing things in, in the office. Um, typically, a surgeon in my specialty will have block time or days set aside what they were operating, maybe two days of the week, uh, the, being in the operating room, uh, doing a number of cases, um, and the majority of them would be on the outpatient setting in my specialty. And so most of those patients are going home. Um, but, you know, a, a select amount would be seen in the hospital as an inpatient uh, and seen on multiple visits in the hospital before they're, they're released. So, um, but in addition to that, what a lot of people um, and a lot of students and a lot of doctors don't realize is the, the business side of it. And so you can fill an entire day with administrative tasks, um, but it is about prioritizing and compartmentalizing. So I do pick one night a week where I have a late night and I don't go home until everything on the administrative side is done. Um, and on you know, the rest of the week, I set up tasks and I, and I complete as many as I can, but when those pile up, then it they get it all finished on that one day. Otherwise, you can get pretty overwhelmed going from task to task to task. So it's nice to have some structure in your day. Do you have to take a lot of call? You don't have to take a lot of call. It actually depends on where you are geographically. Some hospitals require you to take a certain amount of call. It all depends on the size of the call pool um, and how busy the hospitals are. 
And so uh, by requirement, I'm not required to take any call whatsoever. Um, but it also depends. There is some financial compensation at some sites and other ones. Uh, there is no compensation, and um, it's just part of requirement of maintaining privileges. So um, in the San Diego area where I am practicing, there is no requirement, but um, I'm participating. As a surgeon, what percentage roughly of patients that you see in the office are you actually ending up doing surgery on? The goal is close to 100%. You know, I've seen... Um, Surgeons who are well established and basically they are turning patients away. You want to get to that point in your career where you are selecting patients who are the most appropriate that you can exercise um, and and perform the, the best surgeries for the best results and identifying patients who are not good candidates and telling them that they are not appropriately, appropriately going to be a, a surgical patient. Um, Initially, it's not in that ratio. It's a lot of patients are coming in and they're getting educated. Um, and then I enjoy that. I spend over an hour in my consultations with my patients and, and and not for the point of pushing them or encouraging them or and um, coercing them into surgery, but to give them all the facts and, you know, the, the raw details, the scary things that can happen in surgery so they can make an informed decision. So, at this point, um, I don't feel that half of them are going to the operating room because they're just still in that information gathering stage. But as careers progress and you become very well known for particular surgeries or techniques, a lot of patients are coming in um, having already done their homework and research, especially with availability of real resources on the internet. They've done their background on you. They know where you train. They know what technique you do. And they've come specifically for that technique or procedure. Um, and, and that ratio of conversion is much higher. So probably not the best question for somebody that's brand new in practice and trying to get established, but what is your work-life balance look like? Do you feel you have a good work-life balance? I have a, a good work-life balance when I choose to have a good work-life balance. And that is very different from a lot of other physicians who are at the you know beck and call of their pager or their schedule, and therefore they don't uh, have the same freedoms I do. So uh, I can choose to work uh, incredibly long hours um, or I can choose not to be working those hours um, based on my specialty. You know, there are still emergencies and so I won't operate for um, weeks before I go on out of town, out of the country on vacation. But that's, that's the only limitation, honestly. When I can choose within, you know, my personal setting to take time off to tend to myself, to my health, um, maintaining. This is the first time in my life I'm making regular appointments to my own physician and catching up and getting you know blood tests and doing those things. But I'm also um, participating back in community, volunteering, um, and you know spending time with my wife, which is uh, all those things I think are, are very important and a higher focus. Um, with younger, newer doctors, and I think that's beneficial for a more long-lasting career. Uh, the idea that you can just go out and, and just work, 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 and see as many patients as you can, and um, 
and there's value to that. But you know, when you start sacrificing your own personal health, your uh, interpersonal relationships, then uh, you're not going to be as healthy of an individual, and therefore. Uh, not a good doctor over the long run, you're just going to get burned out. And that's a, a, an increasingly common um, phenomenon you, you hear about, you know, not, you know, you're not talking about cardiothoracic surgeons, you're talking about um, all specialties doctors are burning out um, depending on their situation by not, you know, maintaining themselves. So I think good diet, nutrition, exercise, uh, health maintenance, time with family, Downtime are all things that should be scheduled and, um, you know, consciously part of your day to day instead of things that are added on as if you have time. What does the residency and fellowship path look like for somebody in your position? It's uh, it's pretty standard. Basically, um, out of medical school, you'll be applying. Um, I mean, before you graduate to a otolaryngology head and neck surgery residency it used to be an early match and uh, for many years now it's been, it's it's on time with everyone else's uh, all the other programs essentially it is a five-year program it does have an intern year but it's considered an integrated intern year typically at the same institution that you're doing residency it does have general surgery components and rotations but however increasingly more um focused toward uh, an ENT residency. So the elective months will be anesthesiology, you'll be in the ER, you'll be doing surgical ICU, um, all geared toward um, your skill sets that will be beneficial for your residency versus a standalone general surgery year where you are on rotations that are um, purely dictated by the general surgery department. Um, and that's commonly seen in orthopedics and other um, surgical subspecialties. And then uh, four years of, of ENT training. And so, um, and that may involve time at a children's hospital, at a VA institution, may be a research block. But in a sense, you'll be rotating through different sites. Um, and every year, you're, you're increasing um, your skill set. You're learning about all the systems, the ear, the nose, the throat, um, you know, the different types of surgeries, um, seeing patients in clinic, um, and operating as well. But uh, as you go through each year, your level of responsibility, um, and then as a chief, you'll be you know running the service, uh, teaching, and, and mentoring junior residents. Um, and at the same, and before you graduate, you'll apply to a fellowship. So that's typically within your fourth year. The there are a number of fellowships you can pursue. Uh, pediatrics, uh, neurotology, um, head and neck cancer, with microvascular reconstruction, facial plastic reconstruction, uh, sleep medicine even. Um, and so uh, during the fourth year is an application that goes in around March, uh, uh, January through March, and you interview between March and end of May. And then uh, you'll match uh, to uh a fellowship program, and that's for one year that would go after your uh, graduation from your ENT residency. With your current specialty, isn't there another path to get to where you are outside of ENT? Like if, if I just wanted to just do plastics, could I be a facial plastic surgeon with just a plastic surgery residency? Uh, yes. 
if you wanted to just do plastics in the face area, um, you could definitely reach that goal through an alternative route, and that would be through plastic surgery. There are, uh, and I'm not a 100% certain because I've done it myself, but there are two pathways through plastic surgery. One is to complete um, general surgery and then apply to a plastic surgery program, and then there are also integrated plastic surgery programs that um, that you match right out of medical school knowing you're doing plastic surgery and that has a general surgery component to it. Uh, those programs are typically longer um, with research com- years as well. Um, I believe the last thing as long as seven years to finish those residencies. Uh, yeah. And then most individuals who want to operate in the face here will go ahead and do an additional fellowship on top of that. So um, you can reach the same goal in a sense, um, the same practicing setting, um, but you know, but you'll additionally have other skill sets bringing you know to that job as well. How competitive is matching to to ENT and then I guess to facial plastics? ENT is, has gotten to be one of the more uh, competitive subspecialties to match. Um, you know, I think all of the surgical subspecialties have gotten difficult because uh, it's just a pure numbers game. Uh, just from any type of academic application, uh, kids are applying to more colleges, um, college students are applying to more medical schools, medical students are applying to more residencies, and so... You know, there were, even when I was applying, I've met people who applied to every single ENT residency in the country just to play the numbers. Um, and so that put, means more applications on the residency director's table to leaf through and make a selection. Um, and so for, see, we only have a pretty small program. Only two residents are accepted per year. And I'd say maybe... Thirty people were applied per spot. Um, it may be more, maybe less than that. Um, some programs only have one resident. Uh, big programs have four to five residents. And um, although some may say thirty people may not be a lot, but each one of those individuals have um, published research, uh, a phenomenal USMLE Step One score. Uh, letters or recommendations from chairmen have done research rotations. Um, you know, have really stacked their binder full of uh, accolades. And um, you know, I I started thinking about it in my clerkship year, but you know, a lot of the junior residents and from my residency program, I mean, they were thinking about it from their first year of medical school. And there's now an ENT student interest group that uh, starts guiding students from the first day they get to medical school. And so um, it has gotten increasingly competitive to apply to any of these residencies. Um, and ENT, I feel, has has a popular swing recently. Uh, it had a big swing you know, before I applied, uh, but it's always been up there with along with the other type of uh, surgical subspecialties that uh, remain competitive to get into. What should a student be doing to be a competitive applicant? Well, um, it's all the basic things that everyone is always striving for. So, um, 
maintaining good grades, uh, regardless if you're a pass or fail system. Um, getting into AOA as a um, another marker on your curriculum vitae that's showing that um, you stand higher in your class than other students. Um, but then after that, after in the U.S. only step one score. Um, after that, you know, it, it can mean, you know, you can have a, a unique focus in a sense where um, before is just about generally trying to get in some research or in project, but if you can get on a research project that is related to the residency that you want to apply to, um, that can only help more publications, participation, uh, posters, presentations, attending meetings, um, you know, getting involved in the department, attending conferences, um, because, you know, there's always academic conferences every week um, within that department, just um, making a personal connection with the attendings uh, in that department. All of those things can um, make you more visible and create a level of investment from those you know, not necessarily to get you accepted into your home school's uh, department, but also, you know, they may be invested in getting you into, um, you know, their alma mater or another program that they're aware of that would be a good match for you or a geography that you're interested in. So um, it is a time investment. It is um, because you're, you're spending so much time already studying and trying to do all those basic things, but um, by... Um, Investing yourself personally, um, that will, I think, give you an additional edge. But there's also a gamble. I know people who've done that and then decided they want to actually do a different specialty, too. So um, you're not locked into it. Um, and But you know, if you know early on, that, that'll behoove you to uh, create those um, create that report, create that um, link to those individuals uh, early. And so they can really get to know your, your medical school, your career. So there, in the world of medical schools and, and graduates, there are a lot less osteopathic physicians graduating. Do you see many osteopathic facial plastic surgeons out there? No. There are very few osteopathic um, ENT physicians. Um, I've interacted with them. They're all great. Um, within the world of facial plastic surgery, um, it is still a very small community, and if the, uh, I think the majority are going down the MD path, and so overall, I've seen fewer. However, the individuals operating in the head and neck facial area is growing. I mean, um, there are oral surgeons who perform cosmetic facial plastic procedures. There are, um, of course, general plastic surgeons who do those. Um, there are those in the field of oculoplastic surgery who want to do facelift and rhinoplasty. Um, there are dermatologists who want to do more surgical procedures in the face. And so, um, and then there are general um, surgeons, other surgeons who take cosmetic courses and uh, get boarded under the Board of uh, Cosmetic Surgery and perform those. So there are an increasingly number of individuals out there who have not gone down a traditional path of training um, and, and are performing those procedures. 
you talked a lot about some of the subspecialties out there. I don't know if you remember which ones you talked about, but in general, what are the opportunities out there to subspecialize after ENT? After ENT, there is a, a phenomenal opportunity to subspecialize, um, not only by pursuing a fellowship, but also, I mean, many departments are strong in all fields within uh, otolaryngology, and so um, it is, it's not a necessity to have a, a fellowship uh, training because um, it's not as formal. There's there isn't a required uh, board certification for all the subspecialties. Um, not all of them are ACGME certified either. Um, <clears throat> and so you can pursue a, a fellowship in facial plastic reconstruction surgery, head and neck cancer with or without microvascular reconstruction, pediatric otolaryngology, otology or neurotology involving ear surgery, um, sinus rhinology, um, vo- uh, laryngology, professional voice. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting one, but um, you can do fellowships in those. But you know, if you have, if an individual's graduated and they've had sh- strong training, and they can go out and they can become uh, a subspecialist, they can focus their practice doing laryngology and professional voice in an area that needs it. Um, and provide that care uh, at that subspecialty level um, without fellowship, um, you know, as long as they're adequately trained and they have a desire to pursue, um, you know, those patients. And so, um, but that's a rarity. Most times, even those who are really focused, even, you know, nationally known for a particular field, those guys are always um, interested in doing other aspects of of. ENT as well. Um, some are doing more trauma. Some are, you know, um, they may be doing head and neck cancer. They may be doing endocrine surgery, but they're you know known for voice. Um, you know, they may be you know filling other um, roles within their group practice. And so, um, most of the otolaryngologists I've met often miss doing other aspects, but you know find that. Well, there's someone else who's stronger uh, in ear surgery, so a lot of the ear cases go to that surgeon within the practice, or someone else that you know really enjoys sinus surgery is savvy with it, is up with the latest techniques, um, and so that practitioner when that when that group will see more of those patients. But you know, each and every one of the ENT doctors in that group um, is less likely to solely focus on a subspecialty and only only do that. Um, most of the times, they will be a little bit more well-rounded and be doing uh, multiple aspects of uh, ENT, but not necessarily all of them. That just, uh, it'd be, it's getting tougher and tougher to be an overall generalist unless you're in a more remote area and there's fewer practitioners around. What do the boards look like for you? The, the board exam is, um, is there is a written and an oral exam component. Um, the current format is our separate examinations. At one point in time, they were done on the same setting, but currently uh, you will take the written exam. It is a computer-based test that is administered in September following uh, your June-July graduation from residency. Um, 
and that is a multiple choice format test that tests all of your um, all the aspects of uh, ENT uh, medicine and surgery. And there is a pass fail uh, threshold for that test, and those who pass may go go on to the April exam. We're uh, currently administered in Chicago, and you right now I believe there are five rooms with a number of three or four modules in each one. And it's basically uh, a mock simulation clinical case. They're integrating some technology, you know, CT scan. They used to give you photographs, but now you can get um, a computer screen and you can flip through a couple of slides of a CT scan or um, lab tests or um, histopathology. And uh, you run through a case from, you know, the patient presents as... um, a child or an adult who had a car accident or someone who's lost their voice. And then you ask questions, you proceed through the case and um, answer. And you gain points based on your questions and responses, um, and they tally those up. And then once you've passed both of those components, then you're board certified for 10 years. And then through that 10 years, you're doing maintenance certification through online modules every year. Uh, And then at the 10th year, you're recertifying again. So um, that is the board certification process for otolaryngology. You can also get board certified in neurotology, sleep, and facial plastic surgery. Um, and those consist of both um, a written exam, an oral exam, and um, in some cases, a collecting uh, case reports of patients that you've operated on in the first couple of years of practice. Do you know what the pass rates look like? The pass rates are pretty high um, for from for both exams. Um, I can't give you a number though, but I'd say um, I think less than ten percent fail uh, because there's a quite a bit of preparation uh, for these exams. What do you wish? It's a little bit harder, I think, for for facial plastics. A, a general question I ask: What do you wish primary? Cur- primary care providers knew about your specialty to better help you do your job. But I'm, I'm guessing that you don't interact much with primary care providers. I still do when I see uh, more for the general uh, ENT type patients. Um, that's, uh, hmm, I don't know if there's much of a tangent, but I do, I used to give a lecture to family medicine residents about, um, HIV manifestations in the head and neck, and it's shockingly common. And this is from sores on the lip to frequent sinus infections to ear infections, um, skin lesions, uh, lots of different changes um, to that present in this head and neck area. Um, and, and a primary care can pick them up um, if they're looking for them and make the appropriate uh, referral for um, both HIV specialists, you know, um, you know, infectious disease specialists as well as an ENT doctor uh, to get involved. And so um, that's one of the things I think uh, that can, can be, is, can be missed and it frequently is missed, uh, but then can be uh, detected and, and really initiate early care in, you know, at that primary level. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Uh, it depends on um, me personally. Um, 
there be dermatologists if they're removing skin cancers. Um, that's probably the closest in my personal practice. Uh, however, there are a lot of ENT specialist surgeons who work with um, the head and neck cancer uh, doctors will interact with um, medical and radiation oncologists. Um, the ear doctors and neurotology change will interact with neurosurgery for skull-based surgery. Um, and so... Uh, in the intensive care unit, if you're doing larger surgeries, the head and neck cancer surgeons will see um, patients that get admitted to the ICU for um, laryngectomy or tracheostomy management. Um, but interestingly, a fair number of patients are generally on the healthier side, uh, and a number of procedures we're doing are for improved quality of life, um, for better breathing, better functioning, you know. Um, and so... There's a close, there's a close um, connection with ENT doctors in general with um, primary care doctors for sure, absolutely. Um, and oftentimes there's a uh, unfair um, and sort of inverse ratio. You know, there's tons of primary care doctors who need to get a lot of their patients into ENT specialists, and there's just very few ENT doctors available. Um, and you know, even with jam-packed schedules, there's, there may be months-long waiting lists. So. Um, that interaction, you know, but all the time I'll, I'll talk to primary care doctors who, you know, really need to get someone in um, urgently and um, we'll always make our best effort to get those in, you know, and not have them on the wait list. Are there any sp- special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for facial plastic surgeons? Um, outside of clinical medicine? Well, I mean, if you're talking about research, there's always uh, lots of research going on with um, the basic science level, um, looking at wound care and tissue healing, um, in addition to um, these types of different injectable uh, products, hyaluronic acids, uh, botulism toxins. Um, There's a lot of these things called PRP, uh, platelet-rich plasma. Um, and other types of um, different materials that are being injected in for stability, safety, efficacy, um, and improving them. Um, and so there is a number of possibilities to pursue uh, research and development of these types of products. As for, you know, I, I know a lot of, you know, and this can go to any specialty, you know, physicians who get interested in other aspects, they become um, more interested in the business side, become um, chief medical officers for our uh, healthcare-related corporations. Um, you know, there's actually very small and, and probably more should be more encouraged um, politically active uh, doctors. There's uh, uh, Dr. Silver uh, down at Atlanta, Georgia, who uh, had a fellowship, um, a very active surgeon, who's gotten very active um, more on the political environment uh, and stage. And so um, I think there's always lots of different opportunities that you can springboard um, from your specialty, uh, especially when you get to interact um, in both. You could be in the private or the academic setting, and, you know, you can take that and translate your practice, and, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice clinical time. Uh, but you can – there are a lot of different opportunities based on, on what you're interested in, but there is always – you know, you're going to give up – that patient-patient interaction 
um, and and that normal um, typical doctor schedule. But you know, maybe it's uh, for more regular hours for uh, when you're becoming a, um, a, a executive in a corporation. What do you wish you knew before going into facial plastic surgery? I think one of the major deficiencies in a doctor's education is the business side. Um, you know, at Tufts Medical School, we had uh, a great health professional MBA integrated program that uh, really uh, and you didn't really hold you back from graduating um, on with under four years. But um, and I didn't participate in that, but I think it should be part of more of the regular curriculum, um, as this business side can really, um, you know, if if you have a poor understanding of the business side of medicine, there are great doctors that are can no longer practice because their practices get shut down and closed, um, and, and other individuals who have you know some phenomenal skill set and need to get out there if there's this barrier that they can't set up their business or they don't think it's possible um or even you know you don't necessarily have to be a small business owner but as a component within even an academic group or a multi-specialty group uh, if you don't understand the metrics of um and and the financial side of it i mean again you, you can't have practice effective medicine um, if you're running at a loss and your clinic gets shut down and then what happens to all your patients. So I think that business, that economic side of medicine really needs to be a core component in addition to biochemistry, genetics, anatomy, and physiology because um, it's inevitable. Um, medicine has become more and more a business it may not be desired to be that way, but um, it's a reality. And um, physicians really need to understand um, how to run it effectively and how to protect their business so they can continue to give great care to their patients. What do you like the most about being a facial plastic surgeon? I love the fact that um, I contain, I, I have the ability to look at something that a lot of people think they understand well um, and bring just another level of understanding another level of treatment to it. So, um, for example, when people talk about breathing through their nose, um, you know, someone say, well, I, I can't breathe through my nose well. And that may divide up between somebody who's like, well, they have allergies, so it's, it's swollen and stuff. You know, other people are like, well, there's something structural going on. They have a deviated septum. Um and that alone takes a higher level of understanding of uh, nasal physiology and the anatomy and diseases that are affected. But a lot of really well-trained people will stop at that point and, you know, they may treat the allergy, they may fix the deviated septum, and the patient still has a breathing problem going on. And that's where I come in. And I really love understanding the the true nuances of the facial structure because having that ENT background gives me the understanding of all the functionality, um, all the moving parts, all the components that uh, need to work day to day and be normal. But in addition, that additional training in facial plastics gives me the side of the aesthetics, but also um, the skill set to create that structure to improve the functionality while maintaining 
overall normal look. So some of my best results are are noses that have just gone away in a sense. Uh, the patient no longer notices that it's stuffy or they have difficulty breathing through it when they exercise and they no longer, you know, stare and, and and in the mirror and look at their nose that they feel is so prominent. And, you know, some people it feels like it makes them ugly. And so the greatest success is and terrible for branding, but for patients to have their nose essentially disappear, that it just is in harmony with the rest of their face. It's still their nose. It's not a beautiful or fantastic looking nose. It's just their nose. And the fact that they don't even have to think anymore about picking up a spray bottle or an allergy pill and the structure because their nasal passageway is nice and open. And so they just go about and they do normal tests every day without a thought in their mind. And so um, that's one of the pure joys of you know doing it right that, I notice it. I know what's going on in there, but that patient, you know, no longer has to worry about a thing anymore. On the flip side, what do you like the least? I think trauma is tough. I think, um, you know, there's a, a great opportunity to really make um, a major improvement. You know, someone breaks their jaw um, or shatters their, their eye socket. Um, but there is, you know, it's kind of a limit, you know, of what the end result can be because, you know, the nature of the original trauma. Uh, you can always make improvements, but you can't really get them to a, a like a truly better place. Um, and in addition, I think there's a major psychological um, component related, you know, to trauma. And so even with a improved physical uh, state that, you know, mentally there's a still a deficiency, there's still uh, a pathology going on. And so I don't feel personally within my skill set, you know, to really get a patient really improved. And I, I, I don't know who does really, because I think there may be a multi-specialty kind of care type of thing um, to really get someone who's come back from major trauma um, to really get them healthy again. Um, because uh, mentally or physically, uh, there are just limitations from just you know those who the initial insults um, that they can't really get back to you know their baseline. Mm. If you had to do it all over again at this point, would you still choose facial plastics? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I I love what I do. I'm excited to get up every day um, to go and and see what comes through the door. It's still, you know, and I think it'll stimulate me for years and years. You know, interestingly enough, you know, if I went out and won the lottery, I, you know, would be able to, you know, definitely keep my practice running. But at the same time, I would, I would look for other additional skill sets. I would, you know, check out a neurotology fellowship, um, you know, other things that would complement, you know, what I already do. Um, maybe get into facial nerve reconstruction uh, and therapies and that. And the advanced outside of that, so it's it's always fascinating. It's always interesting. There's always more to learn from it, and so I I lucked into the path um, and and where I ended up, and that was like truly like blessed to do that. Um, I could have gone a lot of other ways, and I'm sure it would have been fine. Um, but if there were 
given the opportunity, I would go about the same. I would um, pick the same residency, uh, the same fellowship, um, focused on the same things. Um, maybe small little tweaks here and there, but overall, that same path um, has been really um, beneficial for me as really played to my strengths. Um, has given me the skill set to be a successful practitioner. Do you see any major changes coming to facial plastics, whether that's technologies or just fundamental shifts in the way things are practiced? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely, for sure. The, the advent of social media, a lot of people are becoming aware of new products, new technologies uh, at a much faster rate. Um, the initiation of that first treatment is getting younger and younger. There are 20-year-olds getting um, Botox to prevent wrinkles. Um, there are people getting surgery at a younger age. Um, but the, the the largest kind of um, shift going on in a lot of uh, focus on non-invasive therapies, um, there's uh, energy devices, there are um, injections to dissolve fat, but uh, I think um, there is a little bit of an oversell on those types of anything, you know, gets marketed as quick and easy, uh, you know, and then when they add it as cheap, cheap, quick and easy, um, you know, those results don't, in my opinion, ever really you know, match the the promises of the outcome that you get. They're often short-lived. They have unforeseen um, complications. They have affect your ability to do on things later. They burn bridges in treatment uh, pathways. So, um, I, 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 you know, for one, one of the things is uh, injection rhinoplasty. People are putting fillers in their nose, um, but it, fillers in the nose um, in that skin area don't behave as well or in the same way as it does in the other soft tissues of the face. Um, and even seeing disastrous things like blood vessels being blocked off and um, whole areas of, of the skin and, and tissue on the nose and necrosing. And, and that can happen in other areas of the face, but, um, you know, wound care, those will heal and with some scarring. But if it happens on the nose or near the eye, then, well, you've lost more function. And so, um, so I think... There is this right now, this revving up toward these um, office procedures, um, and some are great, but then they're being expanded kind of to use in replacement of uh, tried and true therapies. And um, and so I think uh, it'll surge, and then, you know, people will see so many issues with it, and then it'll come back. But then, you know, you can't you can help the improvements of the technology. There'll be better technologies. There'll be better equipment. There'll be uh, safer um um, mechanisms out there and, you know, and the, and the, I think for the, for the good. So, um, I think, it, and that's how medicine has always been. There's always been sort of a pioneering technology or thought or philosophy and then new techniques come out and then they kind of push the threshold of risk and complication and they back off and then there's a new push, um, as new developments come arise. And, um, but that's how you, um, progress in it and then, and improve and come up with new therapies for diseases uh, that previously never had any treatment. So um, it has to be done, but just in a careful way and more informed way. Any last words of wisdom for a student that's interested in facial plastics? Take some art classes. 
that's what I would say. Um, you know, that's it's one thing to understand the anatomy, but if you can translate that uh, anatomy and those structures from your brain uh, to your hands, and um, you know, uh, and using your hands, uh, those are all good um, basic skills that can translate into being a better surgeon, um, and and even choosing when not to operate. So. Uh, you know, always kind of rounding out everything. You, know, you can, everyone will study hard. Everyone will work, you know, get a high score on the test. Everyone will strive to get that letter. Um, but, you know, maybe find one or two things like, you know, sculpting or drawing, or it might be music, something to really keep yourself active um, and in a unique sense um, to keep yourself motivated um and you know you may bind uh, bond with uh you know some big dame doctor one day who's going to write you a letter um based on that you know unique activity that you do that not everyone else is doing so definitely see that happen all right so there you have it if you are interested in ent or otolaryngology or even the specialty or subspecialty of facial plastic surgery I hope this episode was interesting to you. I love these conversations. I learn so much from them, even as a physician. So I know that you as a pre-med or a medical student are going to get a ton of great information from these conversations to help steer you in the right direction for your career. If you enjoyed this podcast, I want you to do me one thing. Go share it with somebody. Go share it with your classmate. Go share it with your advisor. Go share it with whoever. Go share it on your Facebook page. Actually, this month as we're publishing this, NPR is doing something called Hashtag Tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, where they're asking their listeners to suggest a podcast to their friends who don't listen to podcasts. So that's what I want you to go do. Just go suggest listening to podcasts to your classmates, to your friends, to your advisors who may or may not already listen to a podcast. I hope you have a great week. We'll catch you next week here at Specialty Stories.